There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in Tampa Ranch, Michael Biden. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Phil Cannon. I'm a retired NYPD sergeant with 27 years of service. And with me tonight, straight out of Brooklyn, retired NYPD detective Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy. How about you? I'm doing great, man. I think, you know, we're going to take a deep dive into the Carly Cassie case tonight, and largely because we have this amazing guest tonight, Leslie Morgan Steiner, who happens to be a mom, a best-selling author, um, a, a public speaker and the driver of a Honda a Honda Odyssey. <laughs> That's one of her proudest achievements, believe it or not. But she, uh, I want to just put up on the screen. She's the author of four books. We have uh, The Baby Chase, uh, Crazy Love, which is a New York Times uh, bestseller, Mommy Wars, and later on maybe she get to talk a little bit, and The Naked Truth, which made me blush when I read the byline to it. But uh, it's uh, she, she's a great author. And one of the things she happens to be, which um, for the case we're doing tonight and the show we're doing tonight, she happens to be a survivor of domestic violence, but also a victim of domestic violence. And she has an amazing story to tell. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about her. Um, when I read her bio, I was like, oh, my God, I can't read all of this because I'll, I'll, it'll take half the damn show because she's a very accomplished young lady that she is up there. Uh, she's an author, a consultant, and a thought leader on women's leadership, work-life balance, inspirational parenting, overcoming adversity, and surviving violence against women. She lives in Washington, D.C. She recently completed her fourth nonfiction work, The Naked Truth, a memoir which explores female aging and sexually after motherhood and divorce. Her corporate experience includes The Washington Post, Johnson & Johnson, Leo Burnett and Seventeen magazine, you can follow her on Facebook or LinkedIn via Leslie Morgan Steiner or via at Leslie Books on Instagram and Twitter or visit her Amazon page. Wow, that, I almost lost my breath. That was so long, Leslie. <laughs> pretty good, Billy. Pretty good. <laughs> but I, I, I'm working into, I'm, I'm really a cop, but I'm working into being a broadcaster and you have to build up your lungs there, you know? <laughs> so, Leslie, one of the things, of course, everyone wants to hear tonight is your experience in regards to domestic violence. And we're going we're gonna, to um, compare that to the case we have tonight, which is just a horrible uh, case, and we're all familiar with it. I'll call it Callie Cassie. Excuse me, Cassie Callie. I always uh, turn that name around, Cassie Callie. And we, know, we all know the outcome to that. But your outcome could have been just as horrible. But you did some things that perhaps saved your life. It's true. You know, I have a lot in common with, with Cassie Carley. Our stories are similar in so many ways, but there are a couple of key differences. And one is that, you know, I think that abusive partners are kind of on a spectrum and at the very far end of the spectrum are the ones who are, they're sociopaths. And from the very beginning, you can tell that they are really dangerous and my ex-husband turned out to be very dangerous, but at the beginning for a long, long time, 
he was really charming and I truly loved him. And I think that he truly loved me too. And he wanted to have a good relationship with me, but he had been terribly physically abused as a child. And in his mind, love was very dangerous. And the more that I loved him, the more terrified he was of me and the more he had to try to control me. And he started abusing me five days before our wedding. Um, we had met in New York City. He was an Ivy League grad, grad as I am. That was one of the things that you didn't get into the bios that I went to Harvard. <laughs> um, and so we, I was working at 17. He was working at a Wall Street bank. We fell in love and he got me to leave the city and marry him. And he first attacked me five days before the wedding and then twice more on the honeymoon. And every time I thought it was the last time. And I really, once, once you're in the relationship and the abuse is regular, you're trapped, which is why I call my memoir Crazy Love, because I was trapped by feeling like I was in love with him. Now, Carly Cassie was trapped in different ways. She was trapped in large part because she had a child. I was extremely fortunate that I did not have children with my husband. He wanted us to have children really quickly. Abusers often do, because they know it's an excellent way to trap you and to make you vulnerable. So what happened in Carly Cassie's case, which is so interesting to me, is that in her first marriage, which we don't know, we have no reason to think that that was an abusive relationship, she had suffered infertility. So when she started dating this man, very quickly in the relationship, it, it was a casual relationship, but she got pregnant. And of course, as a woman who had been through infertility, even though she didn't know him at all, she, there was no way she was going to end the pregnancy. And so she was trapped by that, really by her love of her, uh, at that point, unborn child um, and her desire to be a mother, which I have a lot of sympathy for because I have three kids and I would, from the second I found out I was pregnant, I would have done anything for them. But he started showing signs of being very abusive to her, even while she was pregnant, which is also shockingly common. You'd think that a man could not hurt a pregnant woman, but abuse happens a lot to pregnant women, emotional and physical abuse. So at that point, she was in really deep trouble. And we're talking, this is almost five years ago. And she's, she went through hell um, over the last five years. That's very clear from everything that we know about her and the court documents. You know, I want to play a little bit of your TED talk. Uh, you gave a, an unbelievable speech on this. And I think the courage it takes to do this is, is, is amazing because you're up there bearing your soul and a part of your life that, you know, not that there's anything to be ashamed of, but it's not, you know, we, we all, no one likes to uh, add their dirty laundry, so to speak, you know, and let me, let me just uh, put, put this on the screen and we'll play a little bit of it. I got to get the sound. Yeah, I was going to say no sound. Hey, there it right. is. Let you and I abuse you. <laughs> oh, wait, I didn't, want to, I didn't want to miss that joke. You so want to get the joke? Yeah. But I need to move into the next phase where I isolate you and I abuse you. <laughs> so I need to get you out of this apartment where the neighbors can hear you scream and out of this city where you have friends and family and coworkers who can see the bruises. Instead, Connor came home one Friday evening and he told me that he had quit his job that day, his dream job. And he said that he had quit his job because of me, because I had made him feel so safe and loved that he didn't need to prove himself on Wall Street anymore. And he just wanted to get out of the city and away from his abusive, dysfunctional family 
and moved to a tiny town in New England where he could start his life over with me by his side. Now, the last thing I wanted to do was leave New York and my, my dream job. But I thought you made sacrifices for your soulmate. So I agreed, and I quit my job, and Connor and I left Manhattan together. I had no idea I was falling into crazy love, that I was walking headfirst into a carefully laid physical, financial, and psychological trap. The next step in the domestic violence pattern is to introduce the threat of violence and see how she reacts. And here's where those guns come in. As soon as we moved to New England, you know that place where Connor was supposed to feel so safe? He bought three guns. He kept one in the glove compartment of our car. He kept one under the pillows on our bed. And the third one he kept in his pocket at all times. And he said that he needed those guns because of the trauma he'd experienced as a young boy. He needed them to feel protected. But those guns were really a message for me. And even though he hadn't raised a hand to me, my life was already in grave danger every minute of every day. Connor first physically attacked me five days before our wedding. It was 7 a.m. I still had on my nightgown. I was working on my computer trying to finish a freelance writing assignment, and I got frustrated. And Connor used my anger as an excuse to put both of his hands around my neck and to squeeze so tightly that I could not breathe or scream. And he used the chokehold to hit my head repeatedly against the wall. Five days later, the 10 bruises on my neck had just faded. And I put on my mother's wedding dress and I married him. Despite what had happened, I was sure we were going to live happily ever after. Because I loved him, and he loved me so much. And he was very, very sorry. He had just been really stressed out by the wedding and by becoming a family with me. It was an isolated incident, and he was never going to hurt me again. It happened twice more on the honeymoon. The first time, I was driving to find a secret beach and I got lost. And he punched me in the side of my head so hard that the other side of my head repeatedly hit the driver's side window. And then a few days later, driving home from our honeymoon, he got frustrated by traffic, and he threw a cold Big Mac in my face. Connor proceeded to beat me once or twice a week for the next two and a half years of our marriage. I was mistaken in thinking that I was unique and alone in this situation. One in three American women experiences domestic violence or stalking at some point in her life. And the CDC reports that 15 million children are abused every year. 15 million. So actually, I was in very good company. Back to my Amazing. I mean, when you're talking and uh, giving one of these public speeches, and this was at a college, you ever look at the audience and think of how many people in that audience are experiencing exactly the story that you're telling right there? Well, yes, I do. And I, I sometimes even call it out. Um, later in the TED Talk, I actually say, now this whole time, you may have been think I was thinking I was talking about myself, but I'm actually talking about you and your sister 
and your daughter and your mother, because that's how common it is. You know, if I speak to any size audience, there's going to be somebody there who is, was abused as a child or is being abused right then or is committing abuse. It's just that common. And it's a problem that, that hides in plain sight. And it hides in plain sight even when we victims are screaming and begging for help, as Cassie Carley was. She made it very clear to her family, to family court, to everybody around her, that he, that her, the father of her child, it was not her boyfriend because they had had a very short relationship, Marcus Spanavello, um, the father of her child was out to get her. And she said to many people, if anything happens to me, if anybody kills me, know that it was him. And what I have to say from this, what I want everybody to really hear and really listen to is that in our society, we pay a lot more attention to abuse victims once they're dead versus when they're alive and begging for help. She was begging for help and she didn't get it from anybody. And I was really lucky that when I broke the silence about what I was going through, and when I admitted to my friends and to neighbors, and I called the police and I went to family court, I got a lot of help. I would not be here today. I would not have made it out of the relationship if I didn't have the help of my community. And it takes a lot of courage to help somebody who's being abused, but it also takes a tremendous amount of knowledge about what abuse really looks like. It's not something that you should ever say, well, you know, what happens behind closed doors or it's their business or it can't possibly be as bad as we think it is. I promise you it's always worse than you think it is. It's always much worse than what you see in public. And we all have an obligation to help victims. It's not just the police, although police, you all help victims more than anybody else. You know, the number one reason that you're called police are called to people's homes is because of domestic incidents. And in my case, the two, the two police who came the last night that I was alone with my husband, where he beat me for hours and came very close to killing me. Those, those police, they not only did they save my life in that moment, but they saved my life because they told me what domestic violence really looks like. And they told me how to go protect myself. And for some terrible reasons, Cassie Carley did not get that help. You know, Leslie, when you were telling that story, uh, and obviously I've been to hundreds of domestic violence calls as, as a cop, and I was the one, I was a sergeant, so I was the one to make the decision to lock the guy up or not. Uh, and usually it was the guy. Sometimes it was the woman on rare occasions, but I was the one that would make that decision. And what I'm hearing, when you hearing you say that he hit you so hard that your head hit the, I'm just like baffled because that should only happen once. You know what I mean? And I look, I understand the cycle of violence and all of that stuff, but someone should never get to hit anyone like that. You know, any human being should get hit like that. And it should happen one time and the next and that time the person should get arrested, you know. Well, that's why my book is called Crazy Love, because it really is crazy. And I could have, you know, that he did horrific things to me. He had three guns, he used them on me all the time. He was very routinely holding a loaded gun to my head and threatening to pull the trigger. He threatened to kill our dog a lot. He pushed me downstairs. He threw things. He threw a lot of food at me. You know, he was really, he was, his abuse was, it was, he was filled with rage and a desire to hum humiliate me and terrify me. And ostensibly I could have left at any moment 
I didn't have children with him. And I'm a Harvard and Wharton educated um, woman. I have family. I had resources. I still couldn't leave because my at that point, I was trapped by loving him and pitying him. And I knew that if I told somebody, if I went to the police, in my particular case, I knew that he would be arrested and get in trouble, as he should have. But I didn't want that to happen because I thought I loved him. I knew I loved him. I don't consider it love now, but it sure felt like it at the time. And I saw myself as his protector. And I think this is different than the Cassie Carley case. I don't think she saw herself as his protector. I think he was so out of control, Marcus Benevello, that she knew very early into the relationship before Sailor was born that he was very dangerous. Um, so she wasn't trapped psychologically the way that I was. Um, and in my case, I wanted the abuse to end, but I didn't want the relationship to end. And I imagine that Cassie Carley might have felt somewhat of the same way, that she wanted to be protected and she wanted him to stop uh, torturing her with the family court proceedings and the other things that he was doing. Um, but I don't, domestic violence victims tend to be very fair and big hearted. And we often don't want our victims to be punished and to get in trouble uh, because we feel sorry for them. And, you know, at one point in our life, we love them. And this is the father of her child, you know. Well, Liz, um, let me just, I, I, I know I said this the last time, but it so reminds me of this. It's a weird sort of Stockholm syndrome. It really is. You're identifying with your captor. That's what you're doing. And because of that reason, you can't go against your captor, you know, it, it, and it's, it's true. Your trauma bonded is is what what we call it now. And you know the thing that I would say to you both and to everybody listening is that it's so obvious to you all, right? That that I should have left after the first time he hit me. That Cassie Carley should have done something different. That somebody else should have intervened. But when you're in it in the moment, it's not like these people come with warning labels or signs that say, you know, right now I'm, you know. Uh, saying that I love you. Next week, I'm going to tell you whether or not you can wear makeup. And in two years, I'm going to be holding guns to your head. They don't have a warning label. If they did, we wouldn't be with them. They right. can be very charming and very seductive. And they know how to use pity and other kinds of emotional manipulation in ways that any human being would fall for. Yeah. You know, I know Phil, Phil hasn't said a word and he's oh, from I Brooklyn know. and he's Italian. He is so dying to jump in here. I got to give him an, him an opening. Phil, go ahead. You got the floor. Uh, just, there's a few things that I want to address, but uh, one right off the bat, I think the, the parallels between Cassie and yourself are obviously there, but uh, her having the child, I think you made a great point. That kind of uh, locks her in because now she wants to do everything in her power to protect the child. I, I saw, I have three children. I saw the maternal instinct come out of my wife while she was pregnant and her whole, um, uh, you know, just thought process changed as, as the children were born. And, and till this day, she's super protective of them. So I'm sure that that played into it. But one of the other things that I think uh, that I've noticed with domestic violence cases that I've dealt with was where the abuser will attack the self-esteem of the other person. And that usually uh, drives their self-esteem down and makes them feel incapable of leaving the relationship. Is that, am I on the right track with that? Did that happen to you, Leslie? Did, did, am I uh, going down the right path? Well, yes. And I think he, what happened to me is that I 
without realizing it, I started losing my sense of self and my, my confidence. But it happened so gradually that I didn't really understand that it was happening. And he became very, very powerful in my world. Um, again, without me fully understanding what was going on. And I want to underscore how vulnerable you become when you have children with an abusive person, because your maternal instinct comes out that you want to protect the child. But what's complicated is that I, I don't know any mother on earth who does not want their child to have a good relationship with their father. And our society really reinforces that. You know, you will hear abuse victims asked by other people, you know, like, well, okay, I know he abused you, but is he a good dad? And by definition, if you're abusing the child's mother, you are not a good father. Right. Exactly. 100%. 100%. Almost anybody on the street who doesn't understand domestic violence will need your say that family court judges will say that well you know i know he 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 beat you he broke your arm he broke your nose but he hasn't hurt the child and so we're going to allow unsupervised visitation um what what happens is the abusers are very good at marshalling the power around them and i think that this is in the case of of Cassie Carley and Marcus Spanavella you see it quite clearly that here is a man who he, you know, from us looking at the outside, how can he have so much power? But everybody is staying silent and refusing to help her. Family court judge after family court judge, even though they, it's clear from the record, they have an understanding of what he's after, that he is trying to hurt her. There are no penalties assessed. He doesn't, he's not forced to pay child support. Um, he is still allowed to see the child again and again and again in unsupervised visits. And because it's almost as if everybody in our society is colluding with the abuser to give him one more chance, one more chance to prove that he's a good guy. It's like we so badly want men to be good fathers that we bend over backwards once they do become dads to give them a million chances. So she was in a really tough position for so many ways, for reasons, because of her own biology that she knows that a child needs a father and needs a strong father. And then there are so many other people in society saying, but he's probably a good dad. I know he, you know, you, you, your relationship is over. You don't have a good relationship with him. You know, you know, Leslie, I, I said this joke to you before, but I have to repeat it because it's actually on the same vein. Someone in the chat said to me yesterday, because he doesn't pay his child support, my attorney said, that doesn't make him a bad dad. And I said to her, I said, well, you stop paying your lawyer and you see how long he doesn't think you're a bad client. <laughs> you know, it's a great joke. It's funny, but just unpack it a little bit because it's so true. Here is an authority figure, a lawyer saying just because he doesn't play child support, he's not doesn't mean he's a bad dad. I call bullshit on that. Of course, yes. he's a bad dad. If he's not paying child support, what? But that lawyer is an authority figure, probably a man. And th this is what we are, our society is filled. It's just like we're wallpapered with support of men so that abusers and people who commit sexual assault, it's the same thing. They can get away with it because it, they're doing it blatantly and everybody is blaming us, the victims, 
the the sexual assault victims, the domestic violence victims. Well, why'd you have kids with them then? You know, if he was such a monster, why'd you have kids with him? You know, there you hear, I hear, I've heard hundreds of stories over the years of the things that family court judges have, the, the terrible things they've said and done to domestic violence victims. Because often what happens is family court judges know almost nothing about domestic violence. They receive zero training, zero education about domestic violence, what it really looks like. So all they see is what happens in court. And this is what happens in court in a very short period of time. The victim, me, comes in and we have been abused and battered and threatened. So we're terrified, we're shaking and crying and we're hysterical. And in waltzes in the perpetrator and he looks nice. Cool, and calm, and collected. So calm. You know, if you or I were awarding custody to somebody based on three minutes in court, we'd give it to the abuser too, because he's the one who looks right. But if judges know, knew, understood how crazy the dynamics are of abuse and everything that was said to her before she came into family court, they might understand why we're so scared and they might believe us. It sounds to me like nobody believed Cassie Carley. You know, Leslie, I want to read something from the domestic violence report. High-conflict custody battles. A high-conflict custody battle is largely defined by attorneys as cases where parents make co-parenting impossible, where there are filings in the court alleging abuse, and where the parents cannot come to an amicable agreement on the custody time-sharing for their children. It's like becoming a high-risk patient. And just as a general medicine doctor might be unable to treat you, Many family law attorneys cannot begin to be able to help many protective parents in high-conflict cases. We define protective or the healthy parent as the parent who just wants peace and refrains from adding chaos to the children involved. Cassie Cawley was a protective parent. Unable to get just any family law attorney to help you in your case causes the protective parent to try and seek out a specialist. The issue is that specialists require money. Even a normal family law attorney can be very expensive. There's no directory with the kick-ass attorneys who are fighting for the safety of children and are unafraid of abusers. The cost of a legal battle can be exorbitant. The financial, mental, and emotional costs can be extensive. And that's one of the things that's baffling to us as law enforcement. We see criminals being assigned legal aid attorneys all the time on the public, the taxpayer's dime. Why not? victims of domestic violence getting legal aid attorneys appointed to them to walk them through this, to run them through this in certain circumstances so that they're not going through this family court system blindly. You know, it's a really good point. And there are legal aid attorneys that sometimes do help domestic violence victims. It depends on where you are. And there also are social workers and other court advocates that can help. But usually what happens is that you know, we victims, court is the last place we want to be. And we've just come to the terrible decision to leave our partner and go it alone. We usually have very little money and very few, what I would call psychological resources, because we're so beaten down at that point. And we walk into court and we think it's going to be a fair place. We think that the judge is going to see that we've been beaten, that this is a dangerous person, that our children are in danger, and the judge is going to take care of us. And because of that naivete, we're we're just we're sitting ducks. And family court, as a result, is a treacherous place for domestic violence victims, unless you have a an excellent lawyer who understands domestic violence and knows the judges. And there are a few places on 
in this country that have that. Um, there are parts of New York that have dedicated domestic violence tracks. So the same judge will see you again and again and again, which is very important. So you don't have to keep retelling your story. And it's somebody who only is handling domestic violence cases. So he or she knows a lot about domestic violence. Um, Washington DC is a good place to be a domestic violence victim because there's an organization called um, the uh, Volunteers Lawyers Project, um, where they're lawyers trained in domestic violence work that will um, represent you for free and get you financial resources and shelter and other protection and also help you navigate family court. I went to family court alone and it was one of the scariest things I've ever done. And I have a family filled with Harvard educated lawyers and none of them would go with me because it was just so distasteful to them that I had embroiled myself in this awful situation that was embarrassing, um, that the, I wasn't ashamed of it, but they were ashamed of it. So I went alone and I, I knew what was going to happen. I knew the judge. But you know, Leslie, that's sort of a snobby position to take for these people to say it, uh, it's below them to go oh to God, family. It was court. terrible. It was terrible. It was, it was so horrible to me. And I'm, I'm not talking about, I mean, I'm talking about my immediate family members. Um, they, it, you often think that your family is going to be the people who are going to save you at times like this. Yeah. Sometimes they are, but sometimes they're really caught up in it too. You know, my, my father really felt a lot of sympathy for my husband. Um, he gave him money when we were getting divorced. Um, other people, one of my maternal aunts let him live with them for over a year. And this is not unusual. It actually, you know, the people who helped me the most, I have to say, were complete strangers. The advocate who came and um, volunteered to help me in court and, and really saved me. Uh, the police officers I mentioned. I had a great domestic violence divorce attorney, um, a locksmith who came and changed my locks. You know, I had a lot of strangers. So another reason that I speak out is that strangers and bystanders play a huge role in helping victims. And it's just the little things that they do that help us so much and make us feel like, you know what, we're, you, there might be a chance that we're going to be okay. You know, if the locksmith comes in 20 minutes instead of five days, that, that tells me he cares about me. A stranger wants to protect me. And that's really important when you're trying to leave. And I, again, I think that Cassie Carley didn't get that kind of support. Um, and her hands were really tied because she was being forced to see her ex-partner on a very regular basis in court, which is another kind of trauma, but also because every two weeks she had to um, turn over her daughter, her, her defenseless little daughter, her four-year-old. And, you know, before that, you know, her six-month-old daughter and then her one-year-old daughter, you know, routinely leaving a child with a man who knew, she knew was really dangerous. You know, Leslie, we we were horrified by that and being oh, cops. We said when this happened, when she disappeared, we immediately said, get that kid away from him immediately. Right. You know, because we know he's capable of killing the child just to get back at her. It's hatred for her. It, it, and exactly luckily, right. someone was listening because they went and grabbed the, the uh, sailor, four-year-old sailor, from him or from his family or from his babysitter, you know, that remains unclear. We know on the 27th, she met to do a custody exchange. We don't know. No one's verified or unverified whether he brought a, a sailor with him. I would say no, if I had to yeah. guess. He left her with a babysitter, but which also would be scary because it showed that he had premeditation in what he was going to do. You know, uh, Leslie, I just want to make a quick point about what you just said in your last uh, couple of paragraphs that you were talking. 
you said that Washington, D.C. was a good place to be a domestic violence victim. Think about that. Now, Bill and I have really critiqued the family court system throughout the country because we talked about the location where uh, the exchange was going to go down and all the stuff that we talked about tonight. Um, I think that Cassie Cauley uh, found herself in a situation. She went to the family court. She relied on the system. She saw that it wasn't working because she told her family if something happens to me, it's him. She saw that it wasn't working. So the point I'm trying to make is, is that when uh, Nicole Brown Sims, Simpson and Ronald Goldman were killed, they revamped the way domestic violence is handled in all police departments across the country. I myself, as a detective at that time in the squad, we would refer a lot of the domestic violence cases to court. However, they made what they call a must-arrest situation. Even if you had an uncooperative compliant, the district attorney would be the complainant if you can uh, justify that there was an injury or, or you would show uh, that someone was treated. So the district attorney would now be the complainant in those cases. And it was a must-arrest situation to prevent domestic violence from spiraling out of control and turning into a, a homicide, obviously. So I think that over the years, we need to do these cases, these last few cases, specifically Cassie Carley. I mean, it had all the earmarks of someone who was a narcissist, that he was spiraling out of control. He was trying to control things. Uh, when he was losing control, he was losing the battle. When he was forced to have to pay the child support and her attorney fees, he acted. It took uh, a couple of weeks of him trying to get her into his good graces by, you know, saying, I'm going to come closer to you. And the drop-off point is only a mile from your home. It was all premeditated. And I think that the advocates is going to be a big part of it. Uh, seeing the same judge seems like that'll be a, a big part of it. And Bill and I talked about how in New York, they do the exchange either in front of a police station, inside of a police station. I had a family member that was doing it inside the police station. And then they decided to do it outside because there were uh, people being arrested, brought in and stuff. So not to expose the child to that. But even if every family court in the country has to have a safe space for exchange in the court that's managed up until, you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night, whatever it is when these exchanges are going to go down, where there's a police officer. That's one of the things that I think should really be looked at because obviously in the situation with Cassie Carly, she was lured to a very remote area and he did whatever he did. And these are the things that we're shining the spotlight on it. Bill and I have been calling it out for the last week or two that we had these cases. Uh, there needs to be some changes enacted. Uh, and there's one other component that I think falls into the family court system. The reason that they stay with the parent, be, the, the abuser being in the relationship with the child, you said that, well, they didn't harm the child. If there's no uh, support system for that child, then the support's going to fall on the, 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 the government, whether it be local city or states. So I think that they really want to keep that father in the picture for the financial reason. That's what family court, I mean, nobody's going to ever come out and say that, but let's face it, that's the truth. Because if, if the, the father of the child isn't paying some type of child support, then what's going to happen? Eventually, the mother doesn't have the means, she'll be on public assistance and the states are going to wind up paying for it. So all of those components are part of it. She relied on a system that's obviously broken. There's a, there's a broken part. I'm not knocking it or criticizing it. For the most part, maybe they do a lot of good work, but there needs to be some new policies implemented specifically. Well, you know, Phil, I, I think family court needs to be held accountable and clearly they're not being held accountable. And I said the, on our last show, the only people held accountable in the whole country is the police. When the police make a mistake, everyone's looking to put their head in the guillotine and chop it off. But Absolutely. some of these 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 um, family court, these courts, look, we were always taught that family court 
was to try to keep the family together, not to prosecute, not to punish. Criminal court was to punish the offender. Right. They're going to have to take a different position. And if the offender it needs to be punished, the family court needs to do that too, you know, because in all these cases, I think the research shows that, and uh, Leslie, probably if your husband, uh, the abuser, would have been arrested early on, that would have curtailed his behavior, or at least it would have spelled the doom of your relationship quicker. You know, it would have been a wake up call for both of us because neither one of us knew, even knew that it was a crime what he was doing. You know, we thought we were in love and in a passionate relationship and, you know, a volatile relationship. And it, so it would have been excellent if he had been arrested. And I, Detective Grimaldi, I couldn't agree with you more that to, the two main points that you made, as I heard them, were that the education of the police about what domestic violence looks like has you know, that's been going on for 20 or 30 years since the Violence Against Women Act was passed and a lot of money has been put into a police training. And it's just, it really shows because I think that the, you know, there are still cases where the spotlight is shined on the police and they're, you know, people will cry that they didn't do everything perfectly. But overall, police know a lot about domestic violence and they do a very good job in a dangerous situation. I think that same training and spotlight has got to be shined on family, family court. And I mean, I really respect judges. I come from a family of lawyers and judges, but I am really painfully aware that family court judges know little about abuse dynamics. They tend to be really rushed about the way they make these decisions. They do have that bias that, well, we have to keep families together. And that that paradigm has got to change because the fact that they want to keep abusive families together make it so difficult for families to be safe. Because if you've got somebody who understands that, that that family court bias, like Marcos um, Spanavello did, he understood that the bias was going to be to keep him in the picture. He used it. He manipulated the courts. And that's just terrible. Now we have a woman who's dead because of it. And another thing that I want to say that is really important for anybody to hear is that the most common time for you to be killed by somebody who is abusive, either emotionally or physically abusive, is when the relationship has ended and they think they have lost. And Marcus Spanavello thought he had lost here because yeah. he was being ordered to, to pay the legal fees and the child support. And it was the writing was on the wall. He was losing control here. And so he had nothing more to lose by killing her. And if you are ever in that situation, you can never for five seconds be alone with the abusive person for any reason, for a child exchange or because they have a sob story about how they want to come apologize or, you know, they want to come get their clothes out of the closet. So many women are killed because they, for, they say, what is he going to do in half an hour? I trust him. It's going to be okay. And so I just want to say anybody listening out there, if you have ended an abusive relationship, be very careful and don't ever put yourself in a situation where you're alone with the abuser. Right. Tom Personelli, uh, he's an attorney. Uh, I think he, I believe he's a retired member of the service. Many of these judges have never been in a courtroom until they get elected. Good point, Tom. You're probably hundred percent right. Many judges are political positions. Folks, this is police off the cuff, real crime stories. If you like our show and you want to subscribe to us, go on our YouTube, hit the subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. If you want to support us via our Patreon, we have three different levels. Uh, and we also have, you see the folks with the green font in the chat. That is our, our, our channel members. 
We have five different levels of our channel members, and uh, we could use more channel members, more people in our Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories family. Uh, this is Leslie Morgan Stein, a, a brilliant woman, as you could see. Uh, not that, you know, not if there is a type, and I hate to use that term, and I, I think you do too, Leslie, of someone who's a type to be a victim of domestic violence. But if you if you think of a type, you're definitely not the type. But lo and behold, here you are sitting here being interviewed about your experiences being a victim of domestic violence. Abuse happens everywhere. It happens in every community, every income level, every ethnicity, every religion. And it's it's just hiding in plain sight because we don't know what to look for. Um, you know, I think that there are a lot of people who looking at, at Cassie Carley and Marco Spanavello might have said, well, why is that an abusive relationship? They they haven't been together. You know, they were together for a couple of months. They have very little contact with each other, but it's still abuse because abuse is about power and control and dominance. And he, there's no doubt that he was trying to dominate her and he was trying to destroy her. You know, the the allegations that he made against her, that she was an alcoholic, that she was a drug addict. You know, her sailor would get a bruise from learning how to crawl. And he, you know, alleged that she was being beaten. All of these false allegations. I mean, can you imagine anybody having that leveled against them, but especially a vulnerable single mom um, who is dealing with a crazy person who has no protection, who's wanted children for you know her whole life and has faced infertility, and to be constantly threatened that the child is going to be taken away from her. I mean, that is abuse. And the person who who mentioned in the chat that judges, family court judges often have never been in a courtroom. They also they've never talked to, to domestic violence victims. I do trainings all the time with family court judges who've been adjudicating cases for 20 and 30 years. And they will say to me, you're the first domestic violence victim I've ever talked to. And wow. the thing that's so horrifying about that is that they've seen a lot of victims, but they have never actually talked to them. They've controlled their lives and made decisions about where their children live, but they've never actually talked to them or listened to them. And that's that's horrifying. And it's it's a relatively easy problem to fix too, and we should fix it. They should. You know, you know, Leslie, the worst thing that anyone could ever level at a parent when it's not true is that there's physical abuse. I remember when my son was like two or three, you know how they're, they're the exact height of a table, so they're always clocking their head. Yeah. My son had all these bruises. And this kid looks at him one time and goes, look, at, like he looked at me like I was beating up my son. I was like, I'm not even going to explain it to you. You're just an idiot. But, you know, like, you know, you know, kids get kids bang themselves around when they're a certain age, you know. But, right, uh, right. And, you know, if, they, if you think that a child is being abused, it's better to be safe than sorry. But that's not what Marcus Manavella was doing. And also right. one of the other things that's come out is that he had, you know, he was arguing that he wanted custody of Sailor. And he was in a living situation where he had, he did not have a crib for her, a, a bedroom, a blanket, uh, toys. He had nothing for her. And when he got her, he got, you know, unsupervised custody of her, I think it was every other weekend. And he would leave her with a babysitter. You know, he didn't, it was so obvious that he didn't really want custody of this child, that he was using the child to torture her mother. And, God, if it's obvious to us now after the fact, why wasn't it more obvious to authority figures at the time who could have done something? And I'm talking about the family court judges here. Yeah. They they could have and should have done something. And as I said earlier, it's it's a lot easier to feel sorry for her now that she's dead. But it would be a lot better if we started taking victims seriously when they're still alive and we can help them and we can help their children. You know, this child is going to grow up without a mother, but also 
knowing that her father killed her mother. I mean, it's just, we as a society, we can't let that happen. And we let it happen here. And it shouldn't have happened because people knew what was happening and they were being really open about what was happening. All the red flags were there. No, horrendous. We're going to take a quick commercial break. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you can email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. John Beatty Law, www.jbeattylaw.com. John Beatty is a renowned personal injury attorney. He also retired as a decorated NYPD sergeant. John comes from a proud NYPD and FDNY family. He was an active sergeant in Brooklyn North and supervised in the legal bureau. John is a proud member of the Honor Legion and the Blue Knights. John Beatty litigates across the country for seriously injured victims has helped recover over $200 million for grieving families. Call John now for a free consultation. John Beatty, 917-797-9520. John Beatty Law, www.jbeattylaw.com. We've got a lot of, a lot of attorneys uh, doing their ads with us. You know What does that say? It's good. <laughs> we need to know about good attorneys. Yeah, well, they are, both of them are very good attorneys. Oh, and they're both, both former cops, you know. Which is a great thing. That is a great know. thing. And it, it must be sort of unusual. I mean, that's... Have, that's no, it's true. actually not. In fact, the guy in the ta chat, Tom Cusinelli, is a, re a retired captain, yeah, also, also an attorney. And he's so a lawyer. Okay. Like, that's great. I would hire, yeah. hire a lawyer who is a retired detective or police officer in a second. Yeah, well, so, they know the system, you know. Exactly. Yeah, I was going to say, you have a working knowledge of the law. You know from the inside out. And right. you understand how things work. And, uh, you, you know, going back to family court a little bit... Uh, you know, it sounds like there's uh, an overwhelming amount of cases. That may be why the judges pass these cases. Like you said, they only spend a minute or two, three minutes. They hear the story, all right, next court date, do this, do that. And I think that that's another component of it. And then uh, when we talked about the living space that uh, Marcus had for little uh, sailor, uh, there should have been some type of a social worker that interacted and went to the location. Okay, where is she going to sleep when she's with you? Where is she going to stay? Does she have a bed? Is there food in the refrigerator? Just a normal routine uh, stuff that child protective services would do. And then go back to the judge. And maybe I, I talked about this on our last show. Maybe there should be some type of an interview with a psychologist a person can do an evaluation of both parties, not just uh, the husband who's alleged to be uh, an abuser, the wife as well. Let's let's so that way, if we really want to get to the heart of the safety of the child in this specific case, we should have uh, an evaluation of both parties. And when you look at uh, Cassie's family, when they've done multiple multiple media interviews, they look like wonderful, beautiful people. That kid's going to be in a loving family, thank God. And I don't know what his family's like or what he's really like, but it doesn't seem like he was very caring if what you said is true, that he had this uh, small living arrangement. And then he, uh, when he did have, uh, uh, you know, visitation with his daughter, he's uh, bringing his daughter to a uh, babysitter. So again, uh, what was his uh, real goal? His real goal wasn't to do the best thing for his daughter. The real goal was to hurt her and he wanted to win. And that's, I think it is clear that we can see now, but family court system needs some of these, uh, 
changes. And again, it's going to cost money, but like uh, they did the changes within the police department, they need to enact the change in the family court system. And we need to invest in families. Families are what makes this country so great. So why not, you know, throw a little money at the real problem, which is the family court system. Uh, they're overwhelmed. The judges, the social workers are overwhelmed. When we were in uh, the police department, the DCS, which was uh uh, Department of Children's Services was always, you know, every every social was work worker was carrying a, a very very heavy caseload, and that's how things slip through the cracks. That's how people slip through the cracks. Uh, cracks. Children will slip through the cra cracks, and they'll wind up with a a, a situation like this one with Cassie. I know. You know, one of the things Leslie you were referring to, and he did torture her, and this thing went back over four years because she got pregnant. There's nine months, and then the daughter was uh, Sailor was four years old. So he was torturing her uh, from Actually, the very yeah. beginning and making false allegations against her from the very beginning. And as you said, she jumped through hoops to try to make things work. And you can't deal with a narcissist like this who's, who's, who's crazy and really had no clear goal in mind other than to make her life miserable. And I think that, you know, even though it would take some money to educate family court judges and social workers and have more resources that really protect families, I think you have to look at how much money would be saved too. Because the other thing that Marcus Spanavello did is that he wasted a lot of taxpayer money by throwing these baseless allegations at Cassie Carley again and again and again, and keeping her in, when, keeping her in court for four years. But think of all the judges time and all the people that it takes to run a courtroom. You know, he was just, he was wasting a lot of time and resources. Um, and that money could be saved by er earlier identifying who is using family court to, uh, to continue the abuse and the dominance. And there was something, there's a story that I wanted to tell that is not directly related to Cassie Carley because it was a different situation because my situation was different. But one of the things that happened in my case that was very fortunate is that I had a lawyer who really understood abuse and he understood what I was going through, but he also understood the mindset of my abuser. And, you know, my abuser wanted to get back together with me. Um, he tried very hard. He stalked me. He continued to terrorize me. And then when he realized that I was serious about getting divorced, he fought the divorce incredibly hard. And one of the tragedies of my situation is that my my father, who was very naive in some ways, gave my um, ex-husband money to hire a lawyer. Um, he didn't give it. He didn't know he was going to use the money for to hire a lawyer, but that's what ended up happening. He got a really nasty lawyer. And my lawyer... Uh, you know, he said, he came up with an ingenious strategy and he said, look, you know what we're going to do? We're going to convince your ex-husband that he's beaten you forever, that he won. He won this whole battle because the goal here, Leslie, is that we want him to never contact you again. I was 27 at the time, no kids, very little assets. And he said, let's just be done with it. And let's do everything we can to convince him that he's the victor. And that's what we did. We, I had to pay him a lump sum money. I wouldn't pay alimony, which, which is what he wanted. It was ridiculous to pay alimony to somebody who'd been holding guns to my head. But I gave him a lump sum. We had to go to the police department and I had turned in his guns. We had to get them back and give them back to him because he demanded it. And it almost, it felt at the time like it was so damaging to me to admit defeat, but it was just a fake defeat. And you know what? It worked because I never heard from him again after the divorce was final. Uh, he never contacted me. He let me go. So it was, if there's any victim out there fighting in family court or wondering what to do, 
look for some kind of solution that you can live with, that your kids can live with, that, that feeds the ego of the person, because that's what, I think that's really the heart of the, this case is that Marcus Spanavello, he was crazy and his ego was such that he was really getting off and feeding his ego by feeling like he had won here. And I've got to wonder if there was some ingenious way to try to convince him that he had one um, so that he didn't have to take such an extreme measure to convince himself that he really was stronger and smarter and do truly dominant over Cassie Carley. That's why he killed her. It's the ultimate dominance is to kill somebody. You know, when we heard uh, in the very beginning that uh, she went to see him on the 27th and then uh, she wasn't heard from and that she had left her purse in her car, which was like a huge red flag for anyone to realize that a woman didn't take a purse with her. And then the fake text messages from her phone to her father that were obviously made by Marcus Spanavello. Right then we knew that something horrible had happened to her. You know, and, you know, the police in the case did a fantastic job. They really did. They put, they put a full court press on from minute one to try to find her. And they did everything right. And you can't always say that about the police. They don't always do everything right. But getting taking little sailor away was the that was I said immediately. That kid's got to be taken from him immediately. And they did do that. And that, you know, that saved her life, in my opinion, you know. For I know sure. she's getting a measure. Cassie Carly is getting a measure of of justice, and um, probably the thing that she would want more than anything would be to have Sailor be protected and loved by her family. And hopefully, that is what she's going to get. And that this man who is a monster uh, will, you know, hopefully the autopsy is going to show, um, you know, sadly what happened. Um, it'll point directly to him, and he will not be ha have any access to this child because all too often they do get away with it, and they. Um, it's not, you know, I, this is a terrible ending, but you're, but you're right that there are some things to, to take some hope from and to, to yes. feel good about. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we, we've called for her not to die in vain and that with all the spotlight that's going on domestic violence right now, uh, her family starting a foundation, uh, hopefully there's going to be some change that'll come out of this that will protect future domestic violence uh, victims. And again, future, uh, you know, children that are involved in the family court system that they can be protected. I mean, too often we hear these stories, a woman is killed or the, the, the ex-husband or the ex-boyfriend, he winds up killing the wife, the children. So we don't want to, and when you, the last time you were on, you talked about a statistic, 500 women die every year from domestic violence incidents. That's way too many. One is too many, I've said. And you talk about how 70% of these deaths occur after the relationship, the, the woman or the person is removed from the relationship. So those are really uh, startling statistics. And uh, I think the, we've been calling for it. Uh, it happened after Nicole Brown Simpson was killed. Uh, so let's uh, let's shine the spotlight on it. Let's call for change. Let's do something that uh, the family court system can, uh, you know, uh, make a few subtle changes that can, uh, you know, prevent something like this from ever happening again. You're exactly uh, right. Because what what is the le what is the most lethal thing is when we stay silent about it. Absolutely. And this case is bringing a lot of awareness. I think that it will save other people's lives because if they get involved with somebody crazy like this, they, they won't take it lightly because they'll remember that they, these cases can be lethal. This is, 
domestic violence does kill people and it does often kill children too. And it's, it's preventable. And the way that we prevent it is by talking about it. So I'm really grateful to you all for digging so deeply into this subject and this, this tragic case and the hope that there, there's not going to be another Cassie Carley. I just want to read some of the um, comments from the chat. Sarah Mansfield. Thank you, Leslie, for your wisdom. I went through something similar. K.H. Walker, OMG. Oh, my God, yes. Real with Robo, I pray any silent sister or brother realizes you are not alone. You are never alone. He will disconnect you from your loved ones uh, so you see no way out. Come to me. I'll help in any way I can. Well, one of the things, of course, we hope that we've shined the light on this, and one of the things that I've learned and Phil's learned and we all learned through this is how many victims we have even in the chat. You know, I've yes. had a lot of people reach out to us on the chat and thank us for doing this show and doing the, a bunch of shows we've done on domestic violence. And we're, we're happy to uh, to shine a light on this because it's a really, uh, really important thing. Um, Pauline Robb, real with Robo, when victims leave all hell breaks loose, you have to be very aware that the abuse has not stopped. It's a great, it's a great point. Because you think that once you leave, other people think this too, like, the sun comes out, the happy music plays, mm -hmm. but that's the most dangerous time. Most dangerous time, yeah. yeah. Makes sense, yeah. makes sense. Burr, I gave up child support to get him off my back. Hey, I that, know, that's, and that's, that's probably, that's she probably convinced him that he'd, won, that he'd won too. And it's it's terrible to face these kinds of choices, but the most important thing is that you're safe and that you can move on with your life and you can truly protect your children. Absolutely. I think you made a great point too, uh, Leslie, when you talked about when you were doing the talk that there were people in the audience. And if you look at the chat in uh, the comments, actually, in the last three shows that we did, there's a lot of people that have gone through this. And I was actually a little taken back by that. You don't realize how prevalent this domestic violence uh, stuff is in society today. So again, one that's in three women and one in four men. Yeah. And that's why we're pushing abuse. forward. Right. We're shining the light. We're going to hope for change. We're going to push for change. We're going to call out family court across the country, everywhere in this country, uh, that uh, better things can be done. We pointed out a few of them and uh, we got to look at what happened this in this specific case and even other cases. And, and we, we really pinpointed the exchange point, the exchange point. Exchange should never go with someone who has violence in their history alone, number one, two, in a desolated area like she was in. I don't think she foresaw the danger there. You know, he was coming around for the last couple of weeks, but uh, that really needs to be uh, focused on. There are police precincts throughout the whole country. They can be done there. They're usually fairly safe. I don't think anybody's going to do anything violent in front of a police station or police officers about. So again, that's a great point. Or somewhere in the family court system where there's a police officer station, you know, those are the things that we could start with. Those are the, the little things that we can start with right now here from this case. Exactly. Folks, I just want to also, I want to put this on the screen. That's how you can get a hold of Leslie. This is her website, www.lesliesbooks.com. I wanted to plug her books a little bit. Sometimes uh, people get pissed off at Phil and I that we don't plug their books enough, but I wanted to make sure that we, we did this for Leslie. Here are her four books, uh, The Baby Chase, um, Crazy Love. That's not the song by Van Morrison, right? No, I that's, that's, that's my domestic violence story. But I do <laughs> I love that song. I was just kidding. Oh, you know the song, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Give me love, 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 crazy love. Oh, that's and good. You are good. A man of many talents. 
Oh, Mommy Billy, was, Billy does he, wear many hats. He wears many. Comedian, uh, 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 sergeant in the police department, homicide squad, stand-up comedian, actor, he, college professor. He's got them all. I had to take off some of those hats, though. They were getting too high, you know? And, uh, <laughs> my head wasn't big enough. This is the one I recommend to everyone. In fact, I think I, I'm going to try to get it, but I can't read it in public. The You're going to read this. You're going to have to read this and then have me on again to talk about this. I don't know how we're going to work in the police angle, but we'll, we'll find a way. We sometimes do shows about non-police topics, yeah. Just, you know, to it'd be it, like you know, what you, what, what you can do after you've survived domestic violence and you've gone on to live a very rich and interesting life. Yeah, no, no doubt. And you know something, I mean, you've been a fantastic guest and the oh, fact that you came you. on, you came on twice. Here I see My Anderson pleasure. Cooper. Anderson Cooper's on your website. Go back to him and say, you ain't shit, Anderson Cooper. I was on police <laughs> off the cuff. I had Sergeant Bill and Detective That's Phil. right. I was with Sergeant Bill and Detective Phil. Okay. So go back to I'm CNN and collect right your away. $6 million a year or whatever they pay you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> we, we do it for, we're like Harry Chapin, you know, driving that taxi, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a pleasure being on. You guys are really great and you have a, a great show. And I'm I'm just so grateful on behalf of myself and every victim out there, male, female, whomever. It's just nice to know that you're in our corner. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, something, sometimes it's really uh, a pleasure to do these shows just because you, you, you touch people and you're able to maybe make some kind of difference, you know. Not the same kind difference. of not the difference we made when we were cops because I think we made a huge difference then, but we can make a little bit of a difference here. And we'll uh, make it know, from the peripheral, Bill. That's all. And from the from the peripheral, Phil gets to buy a, a veal cutlet parmesan hero every time we get off the air. And put it <laughs> that's on. How I, that's how I spotted him in Brooklyn. He was walking down the street with one in his hand. I said, "Hey, you want to be on a podcast? Yo, get over here." <laughs> Phil, final words. Final words. Take away from tonight. Uh, uh, Leslie, thank you so much for coming on again. I think you made some great points. And the one that I'm going to point out is that there is help out there. Uh, the system is not perfect. It's obviously broken specifically in this Cassie Carly case, but you did make the point that when you look for help, there was help. There's uh, systems in place that you can get away. You can be safe. And the other great point that I think you made about the fact that uh, once you're away from the person, that is the most dangerous time. So again, um, you know, keep your head up. Uh, there is help out there. All the people that were in the chat, uh, we talked, uh, some of the people made comments that they were survivors. God bless all, all you. Uh, let's not forget forget Cassie Carley, uh, Naomi Irons, who was recently, uh, we did a show on her that she was abducted and murdered. Let's uh, not forget all of the victims of uh, any kind of abuse, domestic abuse specifically. And uh, thank you again, Leslie. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank Leslie, you. if you could stay around after we go off the air for like one minute, sure. just so we can talk to you for a minute after we sign off. And folks, right. thank you so much for tuning in tonight. This is Real uh, Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. Uh, God bless, and we'll see you soon. Stay safe, everyone. Thank you. Everyone. One episode.